we've done so many two-parters, I no longer have any sense of time or space. <laughs> space? The Final Frontier? Podcasts are a transcendent experience? I don't know. I think what you mean to say is these are the voyages of the good ship, regardless. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the The way you reacted to me saying space reminded me I'm rereading Foundation right now by Isaac oh. Asimov. And it is just kind of uh, quaint how everybody in the book uses space as an exclamation. So like instead of good God, they're like great space. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that lines up perfectly with what I know of Isaac Asimov. Yeah. Is that in preparation for the Apple release of their... Um, that might've been what made me think of it, but also I never actually finished reading. I was going to read the main three books and I only read the first book and I want to read the whole trilogy. Oh, I mean, it's more than a trilogy now, but I'm just going to read this. I plan on reading the three, but it had been so long since I read foundation that I wanted to reread it as well. Cause I, I remember not being terribly impressed the first time. And I'm enjoying it more this time through. Uh, and partly I'm interested in it. I So part of the problem with it is that it inspired so many things that it doesn't seem very original now. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting reading it and seeing like what it, uh, just like how its influence has affected other things. And for me, especially Star Wars, like the first chapter is like eight minutes long on the audiobook, and it took me like half an hour to listen to it because I kept going back and taking notes. And I'm like, oh, this is like this thing and the other thing. And like, there's just a lot of stuff that Star Wars like blatantly copied straight over. <laughs> mm. um, like Corazon is based on Trantor um, and other things. And technically, um, what's the name of the planet and firefly that Anar is from? I can't remember. She describes it as an ocean of light and kind of has the same like Coruscant feeling. Is it? It's not Londinium's the um, Anglo part that got settled. It's it's not Shanxi. It's a one. It's a Chinese name, I think. Do they say that it's a planet-wide city? They make it sound that way. Okay, I didn't remember that. Yeah, so I'm reading it because of my interest in how it relates to other science fiction and because I want to get onto the second and third book. The Apple show is a bonus. Hopefully. I read the first one, but I've not read any of the others. My issue with the first one was that it seemed like every time I got invested in a narrative, it would switch gears because it was so sprawling. Yeah, that really threw me as well. And that's, I think, part of why I am enjoying it more this time as I'm prepared for it or as I didn't expect it the first time. But it's, mm. it was first released as a series of short stories and then put together oh. in novel form. But if you're reading it expecting a straight-up novel, it's like just as you start to get into one of the settings, it jumps forward 50 or 1,000 years or something. That's good to know. Yeah. The planet was uh, Sinon. Okay. The direct quote is actually from the pilot. Oh, no, she just says the great city itself. Pictures can't capture it. It's like an ocean of light. So maybe the fact that implies it's not a whole. It's implied that it's a big, developed 
world. It's like one of the two main ones. Okay. I did not catch the implication that it was a planet-wide city if it is there. I'm saying it might not be because she describes the great city itself. So that makes it sound okay. But she says it's very crowded and complicated. So, okay. Well, little tidbit about Trantor, since this is apparently the topic for tonight. (laughs) Um, Trantor is mostly built down and it functions on like they get most of the energy from geothermal stuff and it doesn't actually go up that high. Whereas Corazon mostly goes up. And although it does also go down, it's mostly the not only literal, but also the figurative underbelly of the city that's in the lower levels, whereas the rest is buildings shooting up with cars zipping everywhere. And the sky of Trantor is explicitly described as clear because the cars are all underground along with the buildings. I don't need to leave that in. I just wanted to say it. I think you should leave it in. It's good listening. What were we talking about? Well, I believe we were talking about the planet Mogo in the DC universe. And welcome to Better Worlds, a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Fine, go ahead. <laughs> no, you guys should check this out. The Wikipedia link I put in the chat. I clicked the link and all I see is a planet with a big green lantern symbol on it. And so <laughs> that was yeah, why I don't because the intro. Just read the first first line. Mogo is a fictional character who appears as a sentient planet and a member of the Green Lantern Corps in the DC universe. How can a planet be a member of the Green Lantern Corps? We talked about Marvel um, bad decisions, and that is definitely one of the DC bad decisions. The Green Lanterns? Yes. Yes. More specifically, Mogo, but in in general, yes, the Green Lantern. Did you read publication history? First appeared in such and such Green Lantern in a story titled Mogo Doesn't Socialize and was created by Alan Moore. <laughs> no, I didn't read that. And that's funny, too. Um, I was reading. If Mogo book. socialized, billions of people would die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a name for that. It's called. Planetary collisions. My understanding is that in the series where they wrote like a tie-in series to that Injustice video game for DC where Superman turns evil and does stuff, I'm pretty sure he murders all the Green Lanterns and this planet. <laughs> like literally kills. The planet I, or the people on the planet, including everyone. Everyone. Okay. Also, I think whichever the main Green Lantern is turns into a yellow one. Sinestro? And then Superman turns into a yellow one. Oh, my goodness. This is in the... um, The tie-in to that video game. And yes, I think they team up with Sinestro, and then he makes both the regular Green Lantern and Superman into a yellow lantern. Okay, well... And making Superman into a yellow lantern is the best move you could make because he's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. Um. Anyway, Trevor, the Yellow Lanterns base their powers on fear. Okay. If you give Superman a the ability to become more powerful, the more people fear him, he would be invincible. What? Um, hold on. Did you ever watch Justice League, Matthew? The cartoon. The movie. Oh no. Okay. I had some stuff about fear. Good story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm trying to find the list of the the emotional spectrum, um, like the color spectrum for the lantern corners. So blue is hope. Purple is, I want to say compassion. Green is willpower. Yellow is fear. Red is anger or rage or whatever. Orange is greed. Black is death and white is life. I don't. Is the DC universe just like a giant mood ring or something? Uh, apparently Wait, in space it is. Deep. Oh, and pink is love. I thought purple was love. I yeah, I'm not sure. So I think the pink and purple, I'm not sure on. One of them is compassion, and one of them is love. I think they also have a black and a white that are like death and life. Yeah, I. Thought Wait, I did you say that. that? I missed that. Sorry. Did I miss any important colors? I don't think so. I think you got all of them. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's. That's is it? Are you talking about DC? Yeah, DC. But these are the the lantern core, and there is a different lantern core for each color of the emotional spectrum. They call it air quotes here, but you can't see them, and you can't see my face, which is probably good. <laughs> hey, I don't care. I'm not invested in any of the lantern core. No one is. Um, that's not. That's true. There are plenty of people who are, but they made poor decisions. Yeah. So uh, uh, I have to backtrack a little bit here. Were you suggesting that the idea of a sentient planet is itself ridiculous? No, I was suggesting okay. that the sentient planet that is a Green Lantern is ridiculous. Okay. As a Star Wars fan, I would be forced to die on the hill of sentient planets make total sense. <laughs> um, planet Ego stands with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would be a sentence that makes sense. Here's the Green Lantern wiki. A place no. that you guys never thought you would go. No. <laughs> no. No what? Just no. <laughs> Let's move on. Just uh, say so, no yeah, to Green Lantern is, wikis. Okay, Violet is love and Green Lantern wikis, not even wants. I didn't I didn't realize that this is your brain on Green Lantern wikis. <laughs> Why does that merit a whole it's I've, uh, I've never seen like a hero with it. I guess the wiki can do whatever it wants. So, yeah, it can. What's our first thing? We wanted to talk about reindeer urination, which dare is to say than... no <laughs> to Green Lantern wikis. Did, what did we ever welcome people to better worlds? I tried to, but you started talking about Mogo. No, you. <laughs> I started talking about Mogo, and then you came in with Welcome to Better Worlds because you wanted to cut me off after you heard DC. I stand by my decision. <laughs> Welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. I'm Trevor. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dustin. What is on the Trello board for today? Well, we're going to start things off with an interesting fin fact. A quite interesting fin fact. One of the best. With, one of the best. <laughs> shared with us by listener Curtis. Um, apparently, the people in northern Finland 
have a very special unit of distance measurement, and that is called the Horon Kusima, which is the distance that a reindeer can walk without needing to urinate. I would be interested in a conversion for humans, <laughs> which would be useful for determining the length of podcast recordings and ambitious <laughs> movie crossover events. <laughs> I didn't want to bring in anything like that, but I'm glad that you did. And if anybody's thinking that our podcasts are not long enough for that to be a problem, we record the two-parters in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Also, listen to the talk show. Yes. The talk show with John Gruber, which has been known to exceed four hours, if I remember correctly. It's something like that. It's pretty pretty regularly long. Is it, is it like two porn kusuma? Boron? How is this pronounced? I, I don't know. I don't speak Finnish. Nor do I. <laughs> I said Poran Kus... Kus- uh, Poran Kusema? That sounds great. Poran Kusema. They don't do anything with weird, like, some internal S's need diacritics, so you read them with, like, an S-H instead of an S, right? I'm actually shocked that there aren't more repeated N's or K's or M's in this word, so... Or I's. There are no I's in here. So, what's next? Also shared with us by listener Curtis. Uh, He sent an article our way playing Assassin's Creed Origins with the expert at Chicago's Field Museum. So this is kind of follow-up for back when we were talking about Assassin's Creed Origins all the time. Um, But he found this. This was sent by him, right? I don't know. I think so. I think so. We'll go with yes. Yeah. Um. Matthew, would you like to tell us anything about this article? Or Dustin? Anybody other than me? Um, I did read it. There was commentary from a worker there who... I mean, the main point I'm going to pull out from Assassin's Creed Origin was that he was looking at... This particular man was um, well-versed in like the mummification practices because right now they actually have an um, exhibit focusing on mummification running through, I wanted to say it was next April, um, that he pointed out like, oh, it's interesting they're doing that in the game this way because that's kind of an antiquated practice at this point in time in that he's saying like it's ancient mummification versus right now in in Assassin's Creed, it's like the very tail end of ancient Egypt. So, and they were talking a lot about how there was a democratization. And I... Uh, to a degree, I wonder how much in depth he got into it because they did kind of like when you got onto the periphery, you found people being mummified with like period appropriate artistic representation in poorer conditions than like the fancy versions of mummification that I think he was pointing out. So I don't know. It was interesting to me. The big takeaway for this with specifically with regard to Assassin's Creed origin is that in the, dis- what is it, the discovery mode? Discovery tour is what it's called, yeah. Discovery tour. Okay, so you can take walking tours through ancient Egypt. And the writer asked this expert, how well do they do? And he said, actually, they do quite well with a few exceptions. And the exception that this article talked about was the mummification. And it's apparently the scene that, 
they were watching was what we probably think of with mummification, where you take out the organs, you put them in jars, and you bury the jars with the body. And he was just saying how at this point in Egyptian history, in the Ptolemaic period, the majority of people being mummified, you would take out the organ and then put them back in because there were a lot more people being mummified. And so putting the organs in jars took up space and it just wasn't a common practice. So to be a counterpoint to that, I feel like that mode in a way is it it is trying to look at that particular size of history, but it writes very broadly. Like I don't think I've done the mummification one specifically, but it almost feels like it's supposed to in a way capture the average of ancient Egyptian civilization. So that's obviously nearly impossible if you're looking at it from a professional or scholastic standpoint, but I think it's supposed to be an intro point into learning more about it based on uh, just generic interest in Egypt for the layperson, if that makes sense. Like I could, I could understand the criticism because it's not going to be, it covers almost, it's too broad to be very specific. Yeah. More general points relating to this article. One, it made me want even more to get Assassin's Creed Origins uh, because I think that sounds like a cool um, mode to to use. And two, it re- further reinforced the idea that I need to go visit the Field Museum soon because there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Very true. The mummification exhibit that they were talking about had, I don't know, some kind of way that you can... They did CT scans of various mummies so that you could, you know, strip away layers of the body and see kind of how the the mummification worked. And I don't know, it just seems like the field museum is doing a lot of cool stuff. I really enjoyed that part of the article because they were talking about putting together the interface for museum guests to navigate these cutaways of the scans of the mummy. And they, the first thing they did was they connected it to an Xbox controller, but then they realized that only gamers could figure out how to control it. Um, yeah. And then they put it on an iPad and it just felt weird because it was so small. So they ended up putting it on a 70 inch touchscreen table, which sounds kind of insane, but also I want to see it. The St. Louis art museum did that with their mummy. Oh, really? I thought it was cool that they used some kind of non-invasive autopsy program. They have a big, I might like a big 70 inch iPad essentially with a cat scan that you can move the layers in and out as you want. And it will point stuff out as you do that. It's much more interactive than what they had had before. Hmm. Pretty cool. I wonder if it's based on the same work. It might be when you were talking about that. I was like, Oh, maybe that is where the, St. Louis one took cues from. I don't know exactly the timelines on when things were updated and whatnot. Or if that's more of like a standard for which exhibits are moving. I think that to a degree, smarter exhibits are trying to move towards the more tactile engagement aspect than the like static museum descriptions of the past because they know that will be more engaging for a wider uh, range of people. Cool. Oh, the Field Museum also recently got their new, is it a titanosaur? Yeah, I think 
I don't know exactly the species, but it is a type of titanosaur. They got that guy installed in the the main, what's the word? Atrium? I think that is. Uh, his name is Maximo. Maximo. Do we know if Sue has her gallery yet? I would assume so. I wouldn't think that they would want to move her before she has a place to go. Yeah, but I mean like set up and read, open to the public and everything. Oh, I see. That I don't know. I don't know either. I, I know they've got like a Antarctic dinosaurs exhibit, Ooh. I think, which sounds amazing. So even if the Sioux stuff wasn't open yet, I don't know. I don't know if I'll make it there in June or not. Anyway, lots of cool stuff at the Field Museum. If you're in the Chicago area, go. I know listener Curtis has already gone. How many times? I think he's, I think. No, he was sending us pictures or no, he was sending us articles. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I should know this. I think he went. I'm very celoso. Very what? Jealous. I figured since the dinosaur's name is Maximo, I might as well say something in Spanish. Okay. Alrighty. So the next article. What is that noise? It's me flipping through my notebook that we haven't even gotten to yet. (laughs) Okay. Can we save the next article for next time? No, we can do it now. So this next article, um, I only sent it to you guys because I wanted you to see the headline. (laughs) And that is all that I've read. The headline is, you probably don't appreciate dinosaurs nearly enough. Um, the article is fine. Um, it's mostly just a handful of statements about how awesome dinosaurs were and sort of a general promotion of a book called the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, which I am now interested in reading. It includes such snippets as for many millions of years, they were the undisputed kings of the planet. The long-necked sauropods were so tall they could munch on treetops. The allosauruses had teeth so sharp they could slice those sauropods apart and eat them for lunch. Everyone was having a great time. <laughs> Except the sauropods. <laughs> apparently. Also, apparently, now we know how they went extinct. There were only males. Oh, wait. What? What? The undisputed kings. Oh, undisputed kings. It also, the sentence before that that I edited out judiciously was think of the dinosaurs as the popular high school quarterbacks of prehistoric Earth. Oh, yeah, definitely how they went extinct. Swaggering and likely to peak early and not have any. No, anyway, go on. Concussion syndrome. And no. Mostly I appreciated that the headline and then the article in general are just sort of a general rebuke of almost the entire adult population of Earth for not liking dinosaurs as much as they should. <laughs> yeah. I did appreciate the sense of like, this is stupid that it's rele- relegated to childhood. Yeah. Or that it's perceived as a immature thing to enjoy or have an interest in. So when I read the title, I thought, yeah, you're probably right. But also you've probably never listened to our show. If you don't know, we like dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Just the person. They, I don't think that we would fall in the category of people that don't appreciate dinosaurs nearly enough. Yeah. At least from this person's viewpoint. But even the amount that we appreciate them is probably not sufficient for their 
vast awesomeness. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, that's true. But at least we know that our appreciation cannot be great enough. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a holiness movement of dinosaur appreciation. <laughs> we believe okay. in the entire sanctification of our of our dinosaur appreciation. <laughs> we're not there yet, but we're a little further down the road than some other. <laughs> it's a process. It is a process. Dinosaurs are still working on us. <laughs> I have an encounter you both would appreciate. I found a set of marketed um, things where basically you could pull, pour in stuff to make popsicles and freeze it. And there would be dinosaur popsicles with the back end, like being a plastic holder that approximated the back end of the various dinosaurs they were supposed to do. I was interested in it until I saw that they gave the stegosaurus a club tail. What the heck? What? Unacceptable. I think they did it because they're like, oh, it's rounded. Kids won't poke themselves on it or something. But unfortunate. It was also neat because forget safety. The interior <laughs> of the the interior that would be like the popsicle stick type thing. Once you had consumed all the popsicle part, left a fossil. Oh man, that's kind of cool. But they screwed up basic stegosaur anatomy. Well, here's here's the thing. Think of it as they've just seen Jurassic World and think that they can just recreate dinosaurs however they want. I don't want to empower those barnacles. Um, uh, okay, so another just example of the flavor of this article. It gives a detailed description of the downfall of the dinosaurs and the, you know, space rock hitting the earth and everything. And it says, you know what the dinosaurs did about that? They died. We do the same thing, too. <laughs> so it's just there's this ongoing theme like people think humans are better than dinosaurs and then it just like is trash talking humans the whole time um, except for an editor's note saying that there's no way to know that humans won't be around for 150 million years mm. <laughs> well we could make some good um the most i think we're working on that <laughs> no wait i have to the, point the article <laughs> the author refutes the editor's note by saying look at how terrible everything is all the time and linking to some like article about current events the most insanely optimistic but in a way slightly refreshing science fiction thing i think i've ever seen was some one of the few episodes of doctor who i saw where they like flash forward to the year 10 billion or so it's not 10 billion but it's really far in the future and they're in like a space station above earth and looking down and there's, he's just like the population of earth is 150 billion. You, you all pull together. You have some ups and downs, but you pull together and you keep it. I don't know. You manage to survive. And he's like, and that's the thing. No one envisions like humans surviving and succeeding this well. And I was like, that's insanely optimistic. <laughs> that's kind of the general flavor of doctor who like humans are amazing and the best. And I am from a race of people who have like time machines and interdimensional pockets and things, but I still think humans are amazing. I don't know. It's yeah. Doctor who is one of the most optimistic science fiction. I see. I even hesitate to say science fiction, um, spec fic, um, science fantasy things that I am aware of. Okay. I was wondering if you were saying like science fact, <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> Speculative fiction. I see science fantasy. That works, yeah. Science fantasy, yeah. It's mostly notable because it goes so against the grain of everything else. <laughs> yeah. So, Which is, yeah. 
anyway. But my main takeaway from this is you've watched exactly two episodes of Doctor Who. Because um, that's the second episode. <laughs> I saw to where he regenerated as David Tennant. Okay. Okay. You were describing the second episode and I was like, wow, you didn't get far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I got to when he regenerated and then skipped ahead and watched the the Jack Harkness part. Oh, yeah, that's totally fair. Um and in case anybody is wondering why you saw Torchwood first, and that's why you were watching Doctor Who in the first place, right? Pretty much. And the second half of the season where Jack Harkness was around was by far much better. I have a, a question for Dustin from this dinosaur article, um, but it's kind of a bit of a topic change because it's a space question. Oh, boy. The article here, it says, it's true that dinosaurs went extinct some 66 million years ago, doomed by a stray comet or asteroid. Scientists aren't sure which. So, Dustin. Uh-huh. Comet or asteroid? Can you... Is that really a space question? Tell tell me why the author is bothering to say scientists aren't sure which. Mm. I would think that that would be... Isn't it a size thing? I think it's... No, it's a composition. There's a difference between comet and asteroid. An asteroid would be more like metal rock, um, whereas comet is ice and dirt. Doesn't... Something have to clear a certain size to be considered an asteroid, too, though. Possibly, but that, but a comet is just fundamentally different than an asteroid. I, I understand. So, like that. an asteroid versus like a meteorite, yeah, sure. Um, but I, I don't know. Do, would a comet even be able to hit Earth because most of it's ice, right? It is mostly ice, but I would think that there would be that it would be potentially large enough that it could. Ha- still have a substantial mass to hit the surface. I just feel like the friction in itself would, like it's already bad on rock, but especially if something is ice where the melting point's going to be, I don't know. It feels like that would be the, more likely to break up than even a big rocky thing. Yeah. I would say that, and this is just complete spitballing here, but my guess would be that the comet would have to be quite a bit larger than a, a, an asteroid to cause the same amount of damage because of the whole breakup thing. I guess the reason I'm asking is because I had never thought about the question of whether it was a comet or an asteroid. Like it just never crossed my mind to wonder which one it was. Yeah. And so when I got to the phrase, like reading comet or asteroid, I didn't think about it at all. And then I got to that M dash scientists aren't sure which, and it just like took me out of the article thinking about dinosaurs and I'm like, wait, why are we thinking about this? Like, I guess it makes sense that scientists would think about something like that, but right. I was just like, I feel like there are questions here, which I never even thought to ask. Yeah. I feel like there are clues with the metallicity that, um, there are certain rare earth metals that are, and actually I'm not 100% confident in any of this but i i feel like i've read somewhere that there is a higher concentration of certain metals than one would expect just based on the rest of the earth's surface um that would make it seem like it was an asteroid i i don't think of a comet as having high metal content especially not rare metals i was thinking that a comet would be mostly ice 
yeah i mean there there is dust in a comet as well it's not completely water but what it's definitely not like an asteroid that is a solid hunk of you know space rock so i don't know um this is honestly the first time that i've seen someone acknowledge that we don't really know what celestial body hit the surface of the earth but it makes sense that we don't um unless what i'm saying is accurate in which case it would seem like it's not a comet i guess i just assumed it was an asteroid yeah i've always assumed it's more of a rock than a giant ball of ice but that might be more of just acknowledging that the average reader doesn't know much about this and probably envisions a comet as hitting the cause of the death of the asteroids or not the asteroids, the dinosaurs. I just saw the word asteroid. And another thing that I realized when I was making, like I was kind of checking to see if I knew what the difference was between comet and asteroid. I realized from the definitions that, and this is kind of embarrassing for me to say this, but I realized that comets and asteroids orbit the sun. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always assumed that they just kind of like moved in a continual path without any relation to anything else, which oh, yeah. I realized doesn't really make any sense. But I remember in the past, like when I first heard as a kid about like certain comets or asteroids, I think comets usually being visible on a predictable schedule. Mm-hmm. I never really understood that because I thought like they go by and then they're gone. Like, what are you talking about? And maybe I just like never said this out loud so that somebody would explain to me the obvious answer, which is that they are actually orbiting the sun as well. Yeah. But yeah, I am. I feel like I should have realized that years ago, but I feel, I feel dumb for realizing that now. I still think that you probably are well ahead of the curve for having realized that at any point in your life. Yep. I guess a lot of people don't really care about space people. What a bunch of barnacles. (laughs) Okay. Well, have we covered all our articles? I think we have. Yeah. You had some thoughts about the winter soldier. I did have some thoughts about the winter soldier. Speaking of ice. Speaking of ice. Um, did you want to hear my thoughts about the winter soldier? I would love to hear your thoughts. Okay. So the winter soldier is a movie, which uh, a large number <laughs> of people watched and then all agreed was a good movie. I too agreed that it was a good movie, but I've recently been thinking about it and I think it might not be as good as we all thought. Um, and I feel obligated to bring this up because when we talked about wonder woman, I kind of explained how I felt like it almost became a really good movie at the end. And then it didn't take quite the turn in the story that I was looking for. And so I felt like it fell short of what it could have done. And this particular thought about the winter soldier, I feel like it's a similar failure of storytelling, except it kind of slipped us by and we almost didn't notice that it happened. So other than just, like Winter Soldier is a good movie in the sense of like we like the characters and the action and everything, but it also has received a lot of praise for addressing 
themes that were at the forefront of the national zeitgeist at the time. Like it talks about uh, the dangers of a surveillance state and um, government overreach. And I thought that was pretty cool at the time, seeing that the movie addressed that. What I just recently realized is that the movie sort of starts to address the issue of surveillance and government overreach. But then just as it's actually approaching the point of dealing with it head on, it completely pivots. And suddenly Hydra takes over, the bad guys are in charge. And the question of supposedly good guys doing bad things is completely removed. It's off the table. And we're just talking about Hydra doing bad things. And I feel like this is like, it It makes a really cool twist in the movie. But at the same time, it actually undermines that opportunity to investigate some bigger issues that we still walked away thinking the movie had investigated. Hmm. That's a fair point. Like So at the beginning of the movie, Cap is talking with Nick Fury. And Nick Fury is totally on board with the idea of having these helicarriers to do all this surveillance and kill people who are going to be threats. And Cap tells him, this is a bad idea. But Cap never actually has to fight Nick Fury over this because Hydra takes over and then suddenly Nick Fury is on his side. But at the beginning of the movie, Nick Fury is actually the bad guy because he's the one who wants to build these things. And the fact that Hydra takes over is not what makes massive overreaching surveillance and preemptive retaliation for things that haven't happened yet. Like that's, it's not wrong because Hydra did it. It was wrong even when Nick Fury was doing it, but we don't get to see that addressed in the movie. Mm. So what I hear you saying is that you like Wonder Woman better than Winter Soldier. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's interesting. I've only seen Winter Soldier once and I remember it fondly. Um, but when I do watch it again, I will be more cognizant of that. And I do remember thinking, oh, it takes on the surveillance state. Um, and it's interesting that it kind of does this. It's almost like it hoodwinks us into thinking that it does it more directly than it does based on what you just relayed. I don't know. I find it interesting that the overall sense that people had of watch from watching it is that it addressed it. Yeah. But on rewatch, you see that it's more of a, just it almost addresses it and then it just backs away. Yeah. And I kind of understand why they did that. Like if they addressed it head on as the good guys doing bad things, it would be a lot tougher to, explain and sell to the audience. And so the twist that they made is actually similar to a, it's actually similar to one of the ways that Edward Snowden talked about overreaching surveillance shortly after um, all those leaks back in, I don't I mean, that was not that long before winter soldier, right? Am I mixing up the timeline? I feel like the Snowden stuff happened before the Winter Soldier came out. I think you're right. So one of the things that Edward Snowden said 
when people were asking him like, so why, why is it bad if our government does this for good reasons? And so it's like, if you're trying to explain to somebody why surveillance is bad, it can be really tough unless you tell them like, well, just imagine if a bad guy had it. And he used the phrase turnkey tyranny to explain, you know, you may think that if your guy has all this surveillance stuff, it's fine. But what if a bad guy comes in? It's like he has a ready-made solution for tyranny because he can take this same apparatus that's been built up and then use it for bad things, even when you thought the person who was doing it in the first place was doing good things with it. Um, And it's like there's a point there, and it might help people cross that divide of understanding to reach the point where they understand that the surveillance and overreach is a bad thing. But at the same time, you're undercutting the idea that it's it's still bad even if it's a good guy doing it. And even if it, a supposedly bad guy never takes over, it's still bad that the guy you thought was good is doing this. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of see the rhetorical usefulness of such a twist. So should we head to Spoilerville? Are we, we're just doing all the solo follow-up in this episode, right? Okay. Should I give people a little bit of background? Yeah, that would be good. On how we're doing this follow-up or how we're not doing this (laughs) follow-up? How we're doing this follow-up, but in a respectful manner so that people that haven't seen it yet can still enjoy. Yeah. So there were a lot of things, not a lot. There were a few things in the two-part solo conversation that we forgot to talk about. And uh, I was tempted to just like record this and then put it on as a post show or something, but we're just going to do it all right here. Um, so we're going to cover some things that we just forgot to talk about and then some perhaps clarified thoughts on things that we talked about before. Um, I've been thinking about the movie a lot in the past week and I, I feel like my thoughts are generally more positive now. Not that they weren't like they were positive to begin with, but I feel like they're more positive now than they were before. Like I've been warming up to some of the characters that I wasn't so sure about to start with. But anyway, we're going to go into spoiler town now and talk about Solo, a Star Wars story. So if you've not seen Solo, a Star Wars story, you might not want to listen to this part. So what's on the list? So to start off, we have. Well, let's do your L3 uh, follow up first and then soundtrack okay yeah i mentioned in the last episode that i wasn't crazy about l3 and I, I still stand by that but i've been thinking about why that is that i didn't like l3 and i think the reason l3 kind of annoys me is that it's a character who cares about equality and justice but they're she's coded by the writers as annoying. So the character, it feels like the character is meant to be annoying. And I don't like the idea that they introduce a character who cares about important things and is meant to be annoying. So is, do you guys think I'm seeing that wrong? Who, who was she meant to be annoying to the humans? Just in general, but yeah, I guess to the humans, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I didn't feel like she was annoying to me as an audience member. Okay. But 
I could see maybe. I don't quite remember how Kira or um, Han related to her. So they might have related to her as annoying. Uh, Lando, I think maybe he he didn't he say something like she has the best memory core or like the best navigational charts in her memory. So he can't wipe her. So I guess that is acknowledging that he doesn't like this behavior of wanting equality for droids, but he can't really do and her. Or he's not going to do anything about it because what's in her memory is more valuable to him than her behavior. Yeah. Well, I didn't feel like that was, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I didn't feel like that was him saying he wished he could as much as it was a defense of why he didn't, or even an excuse. Like maybe he didn't really want to, but he was giving this excuse to the other people. Yeah. Or even praising her and saying like, we shouldn't want to because she's cool. And here's a reason that you guys would understand. Mm, Yeah. How many times have you seen it? Just once. Okay. Movie pass changed the rules actually on the day that infinity war came out so that you can't see movies more than once. You can't see the same movie more than once, which makes movie pass less valuable to me and is annoying, but they were bleeding money. And so I guess it's better if it it's, it's good if it helps them not just go broke and stop letting me see movies at all. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still annoyed by it. Okay. So, I had a a series of thoughts on L3. So first I thought L3 was coded as annoying. And that was why she annoyed me because I don't want the character who cares about justice to be written as annoying. But then my second thought was if you two didn't think she was annoying and other people didn't think she was annoying, is L3 sort of a Rorschach test? Like she's, not annoying to people who share her views. She is annoying to people who don't share her views. And did I just fail that Rorschach test? <laughs> I was going to say a cipher, but this Rorschach test is another ability to pretty much the same thing. Although I would say, I don't think I failed it as much as maybe just read too deep into it. Or like I, I'm anticipating that she will annoy other people. And that's what bothers me. Yeah. It's like if there's a, a vegetarian character who's supposed to be annoying, that bothers me. Because it's like, why do you gotta why do you have to make the vegetarian character annoying? Because then everybody's gonna be like, ah, yeah, we said vegetarians were annoying, and here's our proof. Okay, good for you all, I guess. <laughs> um it and it, it was kind of that same vibe that I got from L3, but maybe I was just reading too deep into it. I wouldn't say that you uh failed the Rorschach test because if anything, you saw it for what it was and didn't like the alternative interpretation of her being annoying. And that was what was bothering you was that there could be an alternative interpretation. Okay. Well, I'll have to watch it again at some point and try to not think about if she'll be annoying to other people and see if I, if I'm not worried about that, I might like her more. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the bottom line is that she wasn't really making me laugh that much. But again, maybe it was because of that anxiety that I had for possibly no good reason. Yeah. That's all I've got on L3. Okay. 
but completely useless thing. Was when I first saw that she was being referred to as L three, I was just like the third Lagrangian point. But then, then that that's all. I <laughs> A lot of people have been bringing up the line from The Empire Strikes Back, where three PO says that the Millennium Falcon's computers speak a peculiar dialect and they're all Mm -hmm. people are tracing that to L3 but I mean L3 seems to speak English or basic so the wait did you see that the official Star Wars account confirmed that that is L3 okay well like I mentioned last episode it kind of ties in with the prior explanation of the Millennium Falcon having multiple brains so to speak um it could be one of those things too where just like how in iron man 2 that kid that he saves they're like oh yeah that's young peter parker like they just kind of like that it connects so they're like let's go with it yeah Yeah. um (laughs) do you want to hear another star wars one um there's a, a clone trooper in the clone wars cartoons who later comes back in star wars rebels and he's one of a group of, I think, three clone troopers who had removed their control chips so that they wouldn't turn on the Jedi because they like found out about the conspiracy beforehand. And somebody watching Return of the Jedi noticed this guy with a white beard who looks an awful lot like this the old version of this clone trooper. And like it's in a setting where it seems like he I think he actually puts on stormtrooper armor to infiltrate the shield base on indoor everybody's like well he would know how the armor works and everything so like hey um well actually um i mean it's not exactly the same armor but anyway people came up with this whole theory about how this clone trooper was at the battle in indoor even though it wasn't canon but i think they got dave filoni on board with the theory and by the end of rebels when it's giving like the epilogue telling kind of what happened to everybody afterwards it specifically mentions like (laughs) even though there's like barely any reason to mention him it mentions and captain rex fought in the battle of indoor and it's like i guess it's canon now like just (laughs) because the characters kind of look the same and people wanted it to be so nice i mean in a way that's better than having a creative team that's entirely detached from the fans of an ongoing creative work yeah. Like you don't want it to be where fans call every shot and are the ones driving the story entirely, but it's nice that they have a some degree of acknowledgement, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think Last Jedi stands as a testament that the fans are not driving the narrative and calling the shots. Um because otherwise the planet would be Darth Maul. Yeah, I mean that was my theory and that's what should have happened. Crate is Darth Maul. But yeah, we're going to talk more about the Last Jedi connection later, I think. Oh, okay. We were going to talk about the meta commentary around the movies. Oh, right, yeah, and yeah. And Last Jedi is inevitably a part of that. <laughs> okay. So you also had some follow-up thoughts on the soundtrack? So soundtrack follow-up. I mentioned that some parts of the soundtrack kind of annoyed me. I've been listening to the soundtrack since then. And I can say I actually like the soundtrack as a whole a lot. I think John Powell did a great job. Um, I didn't notice it as much watching the movie, but like I said, I've only seen the movie once. Um, 
but listening to it on its own, I actually really like it. It reminds me a little bit of the Serenity soundtrack in parts, which is high praise. It's not as good as the Serenity soundtrack by any means, which is one of my favorite soundtracks. But it has kind of the same vibe where sometimes it starts to tie in um, slightly Western with symphonic. It doesn't go as far as Serenity when doing that. Serenity ties together symphonic, electronic, and Western stuff really effectively. Uh, Solo has more just a dash of the Western stuff. But it's still really good. It's enjoyable. What had bothered me was callbacks to the original trilogy. Dustin, you pointed out that when they're flying through the maelstrom in the movie. It uses uh, parts of the asteroid field, mm-hmm. the the musical piece, the asteroid field. And I had not noticed that when I was watching it. Um, but I listened back to the soundtrack. Um, I listened for enjoyment to hear the asteroid field and to find the things that had annoyed me. And I was kind of taking screenshots of the different timestamps as I listened. And then there were just too many of them, to be honest. So I will say the way the asteroid field is used, I'm 100% on board with that. That is the kind of callback they should be doing. It was noticeable, but subtle enough that I don't think it pulled anybody out of the moment in the movie. And it relates to the right character. It's Han Solo flying. That's what that music was in the original movies. That's what it is here. What bothered me is all of the times that it does callouts to the main Star Wars theme. The worst one, in my opinion, was the Millennium Falcon hero moment when they are escaping from the Maw. And it suddenly just goes into the main Star Wars theme pretty fast. And it's just like, it's like it totally took me out of the moment in the movie. I'll, I'll probably warm up to it. The movie, it's still cool when the millennium falcon does that but i wish that the music was more like the han solo lead motif that was written for that movie rather than just going to the main star wars theme which is yes star wars but it's the most generic star wars thing it doesn't directly relate to han solo if anything it relates more to luke um by way of binary sunset but really it's just star wars um so it's like, it's just weird for that to be a Han Solo thing. And I was taking all these screenshots. I took like seven or eight screenshots before I realized there were just too many of these call outs to count. There are a couple of them that actually kind of work and it's where they kind of slow it down and weave it in a little more. And it, it almost flies for me, but it still kind of took me out of it a little bit. And then the ones, the other ones that bother me besides into the maw are, they're just like these little stings where it kind of really quick goes. And it's like, there's a, there's a a piece that's great. Like the music is enjoyable and like perfect for the movie. And then suddenly there's just this little, and like they, they're just popping up all over the place and there's no reason like they don't need to be there. You could even just take it out and the piece would be stronger for it. And those were the ones that bothered me. But again, I, I liked the asteroid field stuff. That was good. And I liked the soundtrack overall. Something that you reminded me of in that talk was you said the Millennium Falcon hero moment. And to me, 
that was a little bit disappointing because the Millennium Falcon is supposed to be the fastest ship in the verse and so fast that they could do the Kessel run in in 12 parsecs. Um, but when we got right down to what we see in this movie, the only reason it was able to escape the Maw was because they had coaxium on board and they injected that directly into the engines. And it seemed like no matter what ship you had, coaxium would have given you the kick to get out of the Maw. At least that's the way I read the the vibe that was going around. And maybe maybe what they were getting at is that the Millennium Falcon was fast enough that it could basically hold its ground with the Maw and not slip in, but it wasn't fast enough to really escape it without the coaxium. So I felt like that was a little bit of a disappointment, but um, yeah, I had forgotten to bring that up last time. No, I agree. I, I appreciated that the Maw is still a thing, but I would have liked the Maw and Castle Run sequence handled a little bit differently. It's like, it's Yeah. I I agree. There there was one more thing about the music that I liked, which I forgot to mention, which is the recruitment video that Han sees in the spaceport. Mm-hmm. Did you guys catch the music for that? I did not. Mm-mm. It was a major key version of the Imperial March. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. And that is something that already existed in the star Wars canon. It is, it's definitely in rebels during like a, a March where the empire is just kind of showing off while they're occupying a place. And I think it's mentioned in some books by the name glory to the empire. So like, this is actually like the empire's military anthem, major key version of the Imperial March. And it was cool to see that actually in a movie, you know, like a lot of the other things that were carried over from the comics. It's just, or not comics, the cartoons. It's nice to see the cartoons, um, kind of, uh, acknowledged in that way. It's like, it's not just a separate thing that's happening. It's actually a part of the bigger universe. Nice. So probably the most egregious error that we made in recording last week was completely forgetting about Infus Nest. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time, a little bit of time talking about her. Um, one of the things that I thought was cool about Infus Nest was her armor. And Matthew kind of alluded to it in his description of Infus Nest in Trello was as the fallen captain lady. <laughs> And I was <laughs> in all of the promotional materials or the the um, trailers. Whenever I saw what ended up being Infus Nest, I didn't know who it was at the time. When I saw her, I thought that looks like a Destiny character, <laughs> and it's a fallen captain. So, what were you about to say, Trevor? I thought she looked like a mini Archon. Which, I mean, captains, like, yeah. I mean, the entire Fallen hierarchy, for anybody who hasn't played Destiny, 
basically all alien hierarchies are based on size. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> you have like the regular size one and then it's like, oh, there's a medium size one. Like you're going to need a few more bullets. And then there's like a really big one. You're like, oh, it's a mini boss. And then you get to the boss and it's like, oh, it's like literally the same thing, but it's three times taller. Um, <laughs> it makes sense for the fallen because it's all about like their whole society is based on like rationing their food source. And they can pretty much grow unlimited in size based on how much of the food source they consume. But it applies, the thing Trevor's pointing out applies across like all Destiny bosses and it doesn't make sense for the other groups of aliens as much. Yeah, so. my favorite one is the the Fallen have these these drones there. And so the, the food thing does not apply to them because like they're literally like little robot drone things. Um, and there's... Uh, how big would you say a regular shank is? Uh, maybe at most like two feet across. <sighs> See, I thought okay. you were talking about servitors. <laughs> oh, not, not not servitors. Um, so shanks, they're, yeah, maybe two feet across. I was going to say like basketball size, but I realize I have no proper sense of scale in video games because I'm not actually there. But yeah, maybe two feet across. It's just like this little saucer drone kind of thing. Um, and every once in a while, but I mean, actually for a long time in the first Destiny game, people were joking about eventually getting a shank boss because of this whole size hierarchy thing. Um, and eventually we did get just like this giant shank that's like 20 feet across. <laughs> um, and now every once in a while we get like a mini boss, big shank that's like 10 feet across. So, and like they're, they're drones. There's no reason for there to be bigger ones and smaller ones. I, I mean, I guess you can build a drone, whatever size you want, but it's not, it's not like it's the, they're here, the runs of the pack. Like they're not, they know they're building them. <laughs> I mean, the Fallen are essentially a race of refugees, and it's just like, well, we have limited resources. What do you want to do? Let's build a giant drone, just like the biggest. We build these little drones. A big one would be great. <laughs> you know, I just realized that the tanks with their six legs, the walker tanks that the Fallen have, mm-hmm. are almost just like a a vandal, the regular-sized Fallen enemy, like just down on its belly. Because it's six legs. I mean, it's not really that close of an analogy. But. You're making me think of that like one text where the religious text for the fallen, like I have a thousand arms or something. It felt like they did a really good job of the religious text. It kind of sense because like, oh, that is kind of what it would feel like if that was their culture. And like, there's so much focus on limbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, the dregs, the little like trash enemy of the fallen other than shanks other than the shanks yeah the dregs have they're like growth stunted vandals so they're like shorter and skinnier don't have as much armor and they only have four limbs because two of their arms have been cut off and capped so that they don't regrow and if they prove themselves in battle then the caps are removed and they're allowed to regrow their arms (laughs) so it's like yeah um and i think the religious text you're talking about is about a dreg who is declaring that he will be mighty isn't it something like that yeah i wish i could remember what it was i really liked that one that grimoire card i really want to find it now so while we're on the destiny thing uh infus nest is one of several instances of what to me appear like destiny inspiration and other media forms uh and the two others that stand out to me were are the in the trailer for ant-man and the wasp the villain i'm assuming is the villain 
is wearing a helmet that reminds me very strongly of the what is it the ATS8 arachnid helmet the hunter helmet that has the arachnid eyes um who the villain in the ant-man and the wasp trailer oh yeah yeah has arachnid the the hunter arachnid helmet it looks just like a hunter yeah it does and then the robot in lost in space the way its face glows makes me think of a and i guess the general shape of the face makes me think of a warlock helmet but when i was looking online today to try and figure out which particular warlock helmet i couldn't come up with any uh with an exact match but sorry who did you say the robot from lost in space the the new net oh yeah no it looks like it looks like one of the destiny two actually i think it's in destiny one as well Uh, it looks like a hunter helmet called uh graviton forfeit oh okay let me look that up real quick it looks like it should be a warlock helmet but it's a hunter helmet yes grants like a a dodge ability yeah, that's no? the one I was thinking. Sorry, yeah, it does. It grants the dodge perk so that you can pick something else in your tree. Yeah, so I guess hunters are really popular <laughs> because they are being copied in at least those other t- those two other instances. Um, yeah, hunters are the most popular. So the phrase is "I am a marvel with ten thousand arms." So I had thought that Infus Nest looked like a looked like somebody cosplaying an archon. Mm-hmm. That was what I was going to tell you guys. I didn't realize that Matthew had made this note about the fallen captain lady. But yeah, it's interesting seeing so many things that look like destiny things. Matthew, real quick, do you know who the villain is in Ant-Man and the Wasp? I have not seen the thing you were discussing. Okay. Is it okay if I say it? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I just assumed Matthew would know. Do you not want me to say it, Matthew? Are you avoiding you trailers? Oh, no, wait. Is it ghost yes it's ghost okay i did remember reading that okay. another destiny influence nothing before destiny has used ghosts <laughs> i'm looking that up real quick can we also count anytime peter dinklage is in anything yes yeah. <laughs> for sure the original voice of the ghost um before they realized it was absurdly expensive to bring him back to record new lines for every dlc <laughs> yeah I don't know how they didn't think of that beforehand, but I still can't decide which ghost I like better. Um, I had heard going back to Infus Nest. I had heard on Twitter the one thing that people were comfortable saying in my timeline, at least, was I'm not going to say any spoilers, but Infus Nest is awesome. Or I got the Infus Nest card from some like restaurant promotional thing. And I was disappointed because I didn't know who Infus Nest was, but now I'm so happy I have this card. How is that not a spoiler? I I don't know. It's kind of a spoiler because like it sets my expectations for like how things are gonna go. Yeah. Um which is like honestly the number one thing I'm trying to avoid in spoilers. I'm I'm not trying to avoid knowing a plot twist any more than I'm trying to avoid just like having certain expectations set and then like worrying about whether they're actually going to match. Um, but so Infus Nest shows up and I'm just wondering who it's going to be the whole time. And so at first I'm like, well, maybe it's Kira, maybe it's Lando, maybe it's, and I just keep thinking of like all the people it might be, except I kept tying it to people who I already knew. Right. But then it 
like all the people who I thought it might be <laughs> showed up and I was like, well, it's not any of them. And, and Fizness is not in the movie anymore. I guess at this point, like they just had the one time, um, <laughs> I didn't realize she was going to show up again. Um, but I, I thought she was a pretty cool character. Yeah. And I would be plenty happy to see more of her. Same. I heard some people criticize the sort of rebellion tie-in factor of that. Like it's almost like too convenient or like, why are we supposed to believe that this one group of uh, marauders, not marauders is the foundation of the rebellion. And so just to kind of clear that up with perhaps my just own take on it. um, A lot of the different star Wars media that's been made over the past couple of years relates to the roots of the rebellion. And if there's one takeaway from all of them put together, it's that the rebellion had a whole lot of different roots. So it's not like you shouldn't walk away from solo saying Enfys nest founded the rebellion. No Enfys nest founded one group, which later like, fed into what became the rebel alliance there's a reason they call it the rebel alliance in the original trilogy and that's because it's a large number of groups coming together um the place where this is most clearly seen is in rogue one where there's a lot of uh politics happening between the different rebel groups so like saw Gerrera is a rebel group who the rebel alliance doesn't even want to talk to because they don't agree with his methods and he thinks that they're too cowardly um, and then even around the table in the war room, they're all disagreeing about what to do because there's all these leaders of these different cells who are trying to work together. Um, so Infus Nest, her group, it's just another cell. Um, and it's pretty early days, 10 years before a new hope. Um, Solo's the cartoon show only starts like four or five years before a new hope. Um, and again, that's just another rebel cell and, one of the reasons the cartoon show is cool is because it's one cell and you see them kind of touch across paths with these different cells and kind of help tie them together so that they can actually become a force big enough to fight the empire. So it's like, it's just one seed among many really. Yeah. Though I think that her cell will eventually feed into Saw Gerrera's cell because one of the people in her group was the same, or at least the same species as the messenger from Sagarera's group that picks up the pilot in the beginning. Because yes, I saw that it, it is the same guy. It's oh, the, same, it's the guy. same guy. Okay. Yeah. Um. I can't remember his name. It's the guy who's nicknamed Two Tubes. Um. Actually, there's twins. There's two of them, and they both have the two tubes for breathing in like a human-friendly atmosphere. Okay. But I feel like that nickname is probably enough for people to know who it is if they have the image. Yeah. So I saw that guy and I was like, oh, he shows up in Rogue One. Yeah. Or at least a, a creature like him. Yeah. And even aside from that, her group definitely had more of the vibe that his did. Yeah, for sure. Um, they also had kind of a swoop gang vibe, which I know might not mean much to people, but swoop gangs show up through a lot of the old expanded universe stuff. So it was kind of cool to see a swoop gang actually in a movie. 
just another one of those little things that I appreciated. A swoop being like a motorcycle-ish speeder bike thing. Not a speeder bike per se, like on indoor, but it's sort of a, an air bike, I guess. Yeah. So just as I was completely surprised by Kira, maybe not being a Sith, but at least heading toward the dark side in the end of the movie, I was equally surprised that Infus Nest turned out to be a sympathetic and hero character. Yeah. Agreed. So I thought that was a good, I don't know, maybe with the switcheroo for mm-hmm. Infus Nest, I should have seen something happening with Kira, but I didn't. I was surprised by both characters. Yeah. I think like I said before, I just assumed Kira was going to die. So when she just turned and like abandoned him, that was such a better way to go. Yeah. But yeah, it, I like the way the movie kind of defies people's expectations with both of those and with, you know, the Han not immediately winning the Sabak game and various other mm, things. Yeah. But in a way that's almost like par for the course with the story arc of the character, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You mean for Han to not just easily win. Right. And to, yeah. For the expectation to be like, they even play around with that in, Star Wars and like the original A New Hope when he's like, well, I'm heading out have fun on your thing. And then he shows up like it. Yeah. I don't know. They play around with that tension in the character. Agreed. Um, your comment about Kira made me think of the, the mall role again. I've seen a few people coming out of the movie confused about the timeline. Did we talk about that before? Yes, we did. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised that more people are not walking out of the movie thinking or saying there must be something I'm missing, but are instead walking out saying, wow, this movie messes up the timeline. It's like, <laughs> don't just assume that it messes up the timeline. Cause like they're, they're saying, oh man, I didn't think Han would be that old because Maul's still alive. So this must be before the Phantom Menace. So Han is older than Darth Vader, which is kind of weird. Um, but like, they're not just asking, is there something I'm missing? Which like, and apparently the fact that the empire exists is not relevant to their thinking either. But I mean, I'm not, I don't want to criticize people for being confused, but like maybe ask questions instead of just saying everything's messed up. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm also the jerk who was explaining to people in the theater (laughs) how the timeline worked. As we were sitting in the credits, a couple of people were saying, oh, man, I don't understand the timeline at all. And Maul shouldn't be there. And I listened for a little while and then like a jerk just started like nerd explaining all of it to them. <laughs> no, you were helping them. It was a public service that you were doing. Yeah, it was exactly. It was a public service. Explaining the varied events of Star Wars cartoons is a public service. I guess. So you mentioned that there were a lot of people boycotting uh, Solo, and I have not been engaging with those people on Twitter or Reddit or wherever it is you find these people. Why is there such a public outcry against Solo that they would want to boycott it without having seen it? Um. Okay, so when I tweeted 
about that, I should clarify, I did not literally mean that the movie was being boycotted. Um, there's not like an organized boycott or anything. And that was why in the tweet, I called it a soft boycott. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're not like officially boycotting or trying to organize or anything. They're just saying, I'm not going to see this movie. Nobody else should want to see this movie. So what I was talking about is there's this general phenomenon around solo where a lot of people have been talking trash about the movie without seeing the movie. And there's also all this talk about the box office returns not being very good. Do you know much about that, Matthew? Um, that like, it's not performing to the same level as star Wars things. It had a, um, it performed under the expect, like what industry experts were calling for it to perform. It still made, I think like over a hundred million last weekend, but it, which for anything else would be fantastic. But because it, it's one of those things like how, Companies can do well, but that's like, oh, it performed below the expectations. So their stock falls a million dollars or whatever. Yeah. But um, and then like this weekend, I think they're projecting that it has a very harsh drop off um, mm-hmm. on the harsher end of how things movies kind of tend to be a science almost in that for an average movie, depending on what it makes for its a for its first weekend, you can basically calculate out what it's likely to make based on how just average movies tend to perform. Um, and the it's on one end of like a standard deviation of how far it could drop in a, you know, from the first to second week, if that makes statistical sense. Yeah. Okay. I know you follow box office stuff a lot more than I do. So I thought maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't really understand what any of the box office stuff means. And I have to wonder if people really know the reasons. Like, it's one thing to, like you mentioned, there are statistical things that are observable and predictable. But then people start talking about reasons. I'm just like, is there any basis for this? Or are people just making it up? Like, I mean, am I off base there? Is like once people start talking about the reasons, do you think there's much people can do to know? On uh, no, it's always, um, it's basically looking at data and then people making their own conclusions. Okay. <laughs> like there's not the closest yeah. you could do would be like if you had like a wide exit polling of like people leaving the theater and saying like, "Why did you? What do you <laughs> think of this? Why did?" And that would just be silly. Yeah. <laughs> So it's not basically. uh, It's basically the data happens. We can observe that. But then people are kind of writing the story to often when we guess at others motives, we reveal only our own. Okay. So on that note, let me go into some of the things that I've heard about the movie. Um, The two big things I've seen. There are a lot of people who very strongly dislike The Last Jedi, and they have hashtag campaigns like Last Jedi Awful. And like I don't know where they think they're going with this, but they, they have their petitions. They want the movie to be removed from the canon and just like redone. Um, and those people, and I think some people who didn't like Last Jedi but were not perhaps that passionate, 
are not seeing Solo because they didn't like The Last Jedi. So some people who were just downright crazy about how much they didn't like The Last Jedi, and then some people who were just like, you know, uh, I didn't enjoy The Last Jedi that much. I think the franchise is going downhill, so I'm not going to see the movie. And so they either kind of boycott or just don't see Solo because they're not really that interested. On the other hand, you have people who really, really liked The Last Jedi. And because they strongly believe that The Last Jedi demonstrates the direction that Star Wars should be going, further away from its roots, further away from established characters, they don't want to see Solo because it represents to them the opposite of what they saw in The Last Jedi, where suddenly you're just going back to established characters and telling stories about you know prequels and stuff where it's like, we don't want any more prequels. We just want you to keep going in that direction that The Last Jedi went. So that's what I meant when I said it felt like people on both sides of The Last Jedi debate were soft boycotting the movie. But, you know, at the same time, there are a lot of people who liked The Last Jedi and who didn't like The Last Jedi who are seeing Solo. And the thing is, um, even continuing through the last couple of days, I keep seeing people say, I went and saw The Last Jedi. It was pretty great. Why are people saying bad things about it? It's like, well, the people saying bad things about it are the people who aren't seeing it because they just assume it's going to be bad. So I'm sure there are exceptions out there and there are people who've seen it and not liked it. But the vast, all, pretty much all of the negative commentary I've seen has been from people who are not seeing it. You know, there, it also includes fans of the original trilogy who just say, you know, we tried prequels once. We don't want prequels. We just want to... We don't want you deep mystifying the characters that we love. We like that their backstory is mysterious. Um, and they might even extrapolate. In some cases, I've seen them say, nobody wants this, which is a broad brush statement, which is obviously not true because there are plenty of people seeing the movie and enjoying it. So you can't just say nobody wants this or nobody should like this. Like it just It just drives me nuts because there's this idea that people can't like what they like they have to like what we say they can like and it feels like that is a really strong impulse in discussion around star wars right now in a way it's not so much like you can't like what you like it's like well you can like this but when you like that that means this about you yes exactly and it's used as a way of just like uh socially stratifying or maybe not socially stratifying but jumping to conclusions about something about the other people that are making comments about stuff just because they, I don't know, like as a way of like saying, well, I'm better than that person because of this opinion. Like, I don't know. That's how it feels in some ways. Yeah. So I, I literally saw a tweet in the past week that said I was looking at star Wars rankings and I saw some dude put attack of the clones above the last Jedi. So if anybody doesn't think that people who didn't like The Last Jedi were not misogynists, there you go. There's your proof that all those people are misogynists. It's like, how how is that proof? Okay, yes. There, like, there are people out there who don't like The Last Jedi because they are misogynists. That is almost certainly true because there are millions of people who've seen these movies. Um, and there are people who don't like that there are that many female characters in the movie. But there are also plenty of people who just didn't like the movie as much. And... It's also entirely possible that the person they're talking about really likes Attack of the Clones. And they might also like The Last Jedi. 
but they just like to take out the clones more. Like it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the making up stories about the box office turns. Like you're making up stories about people's star Wars rankings that explain how they're bad people. If they disagree with you, I just said you a bunch of times and I have recently become aware that when I use it in that way in speech, sometimes people think I'm talking about them. So I just want to clarify, I am saying (laughs) when a person does such and such thing, I'm not saying that anybody in hearing of this is doing this. I'm just complaining about people in general out there on the internet, annoying me. I log in to Twitter every day just to see people talk about how I'm a bad person because I prefer different Star Wars movies than them. It's kind of like the irony of the last Jedi thing to me is um, there's kind of this ongoing debate with like pretty much everybody I talk with about the last Jedi regarding whether or not Poe or Holdo was in the right in their argument. I think that Holdo was in the right. She's an admiral. She is the person in charge of the resistance and a captain is asking her for explanations. Um, And I feel like it would be very easy for me to make a case that people would not feel the way they do about Poe being right if Holdo, if that role was a male leading the ship. I think that would be a fairly easy case to make. But I am not going to make that case because I know that there are people who I have talked with who take Poe's side on that who are not misogynists in any way. And it would be utterly ridiculous for me to describe those people as misogynists simply because they disagree with me about Poe versus Holdo. Have I ranted enough? No, I keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're done, then like, I guess I'm done, but I keep saying the same things. Sometimes you can (laughs) prove something in your own mind, but that doesn't make you not annoying. (laughs) wrong oh my god okay so i just why did i open twitter just now that's a very good question the growing emptiness of the star wars universe that looks like a link i I want to click but okay number one don't read new yorker articles just don't do it really no they're all basically written so condescendingly have you ever read a new yorker article (laughs) um i can't remember i am it could be some sort of selection bias where just like the ones I end up reading, but they're all so condescending. They're just so condescending. Where does Ta-Nehisi Coates write? That's the Atlantic, isn't it? Yeah, he writes the Atlantic. Okay. I'm searching my Insta paper for the New Yorker to see if I... Dun, 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 dun. Wow, this is mostly I mean, you can read them and come to your own conclusions. Downs. I'm. That's what my experience has been. Like, I've read... I've literally read New Yorker articles and thought like, Good lord, this is why people hate what they perceive as like new as like big city liberals because this doesn't care at all about like anyone but I don't know. Anyway, maybe I'm reading the wrong people who write for the New Yorker. I guarantee you I'm still going to read this and get angry. Yeah, I'm working on that right now. You're reading it now? Well, I'd started the first line. But that would take me too long to do on air, so I will Save this for later. Let's see how long Instapaper says it's going to be. Six-minute read. Can people wait that long? No. <laughs> no, I can't. You're going to read it, aren't you? 
Not eventually. I'm, I mean, I, oh, okay. I am reading it right now, but I'm not going to read it right now. You just contradicted yourself. I promise. <laughs> to begin with, Solo confronts the problems of any prequel. Ugh. I would just love to hear like one conversation about Star Wars, other than our own, that does not include pot shots at the prequels. I would love it. I finally unsubscribed to another podcast that literally always takes pot shots at the prequels. I know which podcast that is. No matter what they discuss. No matter what they discuss, there's a shot at the Star Wars prequels. Occasionally, like mostly I listen to their Star Wars episodes. Every once in a while I listen to another one and they'll just be like, yeah, uh, we all have disagreements about It's a Wonderful Life, which we're discussing on this episode, but we can all agree the Star Wars prequels are terrible. I might be making this up, but... Um, <laughs> Probably not, though. I am, this, is a, this is a constructed example of what it feels like listening to that other podcast. The cheesy villain Darth Maul. I can't believe I'm going to read this. <laughs> You're going to read, read it, it later, later, though. Okay. Postulation. Anybody who can use the phrase, the growing emptiness of the Star Wars universe is not engaging very much of the Star Wars universe. Yeah, I can see that. I'm going to stop looking at this article right now, and I'm going to close Twitter. I'm going to breathe. So where can they find the show notes? I did take Twitter off of my phone recently so that I wouldn't be told that I was wrong about my Star Wars movie rankings quite as readily and as often. I Did I even, did I actually tweet my Star Wars ranking after seeing Solo? I think so begrudgingly. Yeah, I did. I I refused I refused to put them all together. Yeah. Um although af- so after I saw that tweet about like clearly somebody was misogynist if they ranked um Attack of the Clones or no, sorry, it wasn't Attack of the Clones, it was The Phantom Menace. They said somebody had ranked The Phantom Menace above The Last Jedi. And so I checked my prior ranking where I put them all together and sure enough, I had Phantom Menace one step above The Last Jedi. I like both of those movies. I just think the Phantom Menace is um, a more cohesive unit. The Last mm-hmm. Jedi is a little more is a little too uneven. It's like there there are parts that are better than the Phantom Menace, but there are also parts that are worse than the Phantom Menace. So overall, it doesn't hold together as well. The Last Jedi definitely has a lack of Gungans. Yeah, a huge flaw. Um, but yeah, my more recent my ranking after Solo, I finally broke them into pre and post Disney. So I just ranked, you know, the original six saga movies against each other. And then the, the four Disney movies. Um, although I would mod, I said rogue one, the last Jedi solo force awakens. I would actually switch solo in the last Jedi now, which <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm a terrible person. All the people who love the last Jedi, but yeah, I think this, that solo is a, a more solid, it's it's more consistent. Same thing as I said about the Phantom Menace. It's more consistent. Um, Last Jedi has higher highs and lower lows and bouts of just not great storytelling. So at least that's my hot take. Yeah. My cold take. Your cold take. We need more cold takes. Like just in general, the world. Either that, I, I don't know what I mean by that. I feel like that's another New Yorker article that somebody would write. Either that or it's a profound statement. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> it's one or the other. Yeah. So as Dustin said, where can you find the show notes? Yeah.
find the show notes for this episode at betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 38. You can find us on Twitter at betterworldsnet. And you can find our Slack group at slack.betterworlds.net. Thanks for listening. Go then. I'm going to cut out like a half hour of that. Did I get too ranty? Did I get too ranty? Do I need to? No, I thought it was good. I thought it was good rant because that's something that we want to keep hitting is gatekeeping sucks. Did we, did I, did I land on that note? I felt you can like what you like. Yeah. No, I felt (laughs) it's okay to like different things. You landed it. You stuck the landing. Okay. For sure.